Well, we are wrapping up our series today called Better For It. And I was thinking about this through the whole series that we've been talking about. Have you ever noticed that many of the people who respect it, we respect in our lives, we respect them for how they respond to adversity in their lives? Like they run into something that's difficult. They walk through pain or circumstances where it feels like the valley of the shadow of death. Or you know somebody that went through an injustice, but they did not decide to be bitter. They decided to be better for it. They decided to navigate through and not hurt back. Maybe you know somebody that walked through a health crisis and they walked through it and it was difficult, but they did not lose their capacity to love and love life. What we've been saying in this series is when people do that, they are using their superpower. They're super proud. This idea that they do not become like the people they despise. The innocent people do not become guilty people when bad things happen. They reflect something that's beautiful and wonderful. And this idea that we can redeem bad and difficult circumstances in our lives. And as our series has said, we can be better for it, stronger for it. Because you know this, it really would be a shame to go through all the pain that we've gone through with pandemics and racial tension and you know election coming up and there's all this strife in our world and maybe your own personal strife, because I know you have your own personal stuff. Forget what's happening in culture and the world. You have your stuff. To go through all that pain without gaining something really would be a shame. And so the question we've been asking is how we can, how we can be better for it and what should I begin doing that I should have been doing all along? Because that's a realization some of us have come to when it comes to our finances, our relationships, our own personal faith, when our world falls apart a little bit, or our own personal world. We often say, if I could go back, if I could go back and do this six months ago, I'd be in a better place now. Well, if that's true, what could we start doing now that would help us when the next tough thing happens? Because the world is never going to be short on tough things. And it would be tragic to lose perspective on the times that we're living in as difficult as they are. And our superpower, this is what we discovered last week, that our superpower is our respondability. This is such a big idea because the way we are wired is to react. And you've seen this. You grew up with a dad maybe that reacted. You've had a boss that just reacted. You had a spouse that just reacted. And when they reacted, everybody felt the pain of their reaction and what they said and what they did. And no one was better for it. It was modeled for you. And here's what happens when we react in any part of our lives. We reflect what we despise and we give up our legacy, and we have the potential to forfeit our you know, destiny and the plan God has for our lives. But the right response, a measured response, a faithful response, has the power to take pain and suffering and redeem it, to react to circumstances. We all know this. Sets us up to reflect those circumstances that we decide versus a measured response, a thoughtful response, a response that says, what would the person I admire, what would God do in these circumstances where we do not have to give up control of our lives? And the reason we miss this and the reason we ought to talk about it and the reason it's so difficult is this, that the response that that has the potential to reverse the natural course of things isn't natural. It is never natural. When I am dinged or hurt or I'm in pain or I feel abused or misled, to back up and think, what's the best response I could have? And then to act on it. This is not intuitive. The cool thing, though, the powerful thing is you've been invited. 
and I've been invited, whether you're a person of faith or not, you have been invited to walk in this direction. And you need to know that if you are a Jesus follower, the person that is at the center of our faith, when he came to this planet and people treated him miserably poor and hurt him and falsely convicted him, he chose not to save himself. Instead, he had a measured response which saved you, and it saved me. The person that came before Jesus that also was a picture of this incredible measured response was a man named Joseph, and we've talked about him over the last couple of weeks. We're, we're 25 years into Joseph's story. And Joseph, from the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, he is, his story it represents um, this idea of sustaining, course-reversing, sanity-preserving response that changed the world. And what we learn from Joseph's story, and if you missed last week, I'd love for you to go back and watch it, is never underestimate the power of a measured response. And here's what's beautiful about Joseph's story, and we'll see it again today, that every time he responded well, that every time he responded as if God was with him, he could not see the benefits of it in the moment. But at the end of his life, he had put together such an amazing response and a life that responded well that it's a story that we're talking about thousands and thousands of years later. Let me recap Joseph's life um, as we read it in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Joseph Jacobson, just as a snarky little thing, we call him Jacobson because he literally was Jacob's son. Isn't that catchy? You guys get that? We had to give him a last name to make this work. Um, his resume is he was kidnapped once, sabotaged by his own brothers, thrown in a pit, in a cistern, left naked, and then he was sold not once but twice. He was framed for something he didn't do, something he was innocent of, and he was in prison. And this happened not once, it happened more than one time in each of these circumstances throughout his story. And this is where Joseph's story and your story might intersect. Because Joseph, in the middle of this tragic events of his life, he found himself in a place where no one was looking for him. And even worse, no one was looking out for him. And that may be right where you are today. I mean, you decide to show up into church and come be a part of this because you didn't feel like you had anybody looking out for you. You're just looking for someone to walk beside you. Joseph felt completely abandoned, except he trusted that God was with him. Joseph responded, and we'll see this in the story again today, as if God were with him when it looked as if God had abandoned him. And this brings us to the question we ended on last week, and we will end on today. What would it look like if someone in your circumstances completely confidently believed that God could be trusted? How would you respond? Now, we know what's normal. We know what it's like to react. All we have to do is look around us, you know, flip on social media, and this is how you react. If you just react for a reaction, say, but how would someone who trusted God was with them react? Someone that believed there was more to my story than just what I can see. So here we have Joseph. He's been sabotaged by his brothers, sold into slavery, accused of rape, which he was completely innocent of. Now he finds himself in prison. This is where he left off last week. That Joseph's master, whose name was Potiphar, took him and he put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Now remember, he's in prison because he decided to do the right thing and he was so, you know, he offended his master's wife so much by resisting her sexual invitation that she just decided to call him a rapist when he wasn't. He avoided a situation which got him in trouble, which leads us to that place where we all have felt in life. This is just not fair. 
This is just not fair. Have you ever said this is just not fair? Now, God was with Joseph, and I'm not sure he felt it all the time. Scripture goes on. It says, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness. This is so interesting because the actual translation means loving kindness. Like God showed Joseph loving kindness, like a covenant kindness, except Joseph is sitting in prison. And it probably felt like God was not showing up. He showed him kindness or loving kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And I wonder if Joseph would have just said, hey, can we just stop at favor, God? See, you showed me favor, but I just wish I could see some of it. And I wonder if Joseph thought in those moments, I wish God would go be with someone else for a change. If this is what favor is, God, I wish you would show favor to someone else, like my brothers. You know the guys that threw me in that pit and sold me off? I wish you would show them a little of this kind of favor. Or Potiphar, or certainly Potiphar's wife. I need a break. I'm sitting in prison. Now, months go by, and years go by, and nothing changes. God's with me. I trust that he's with me. I'm still trusting in my Heavenly Father, but nothing is changing. And then this odd twist of events happens when you read the scriptures around this story. Pharaoh had a butler, and he had a baker on his staff or on his team. And somehow, both the butler and the baker began, began to be at odds with Pharaoh, and he just threw them both in prison. That's the, you know, I guess the privilege of being king. You don't like someone, you just throw them in prison. And so now, Pharaoh's butler and his baker in prison with Joseph. Joseph is kind of running the prison. And one night when the butler and baker are in prison, they have this intricate, sophisticated dream. And the next morning, Joseph approaches them, and they tell him, their dream, like, hey, Joseph, can you do anything with this? We've heard you're pretty good with this dream thing. Can you do anything with this? And they share their dream with Joseph. And this is his reaction. I, I love this. Do not, he says, interpretations belong to God, which indicates Joseph, after being sold, being a prisoner, being a slave, sitting in prison, he's still thinking about God with him, which is absolutely amazing. And he decides to respond rather to act. That's what he says. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And so they tell him. The butler goes first. The butler was probably the wine taster. That's why they called him the butler, which if you think about it, is not a very bad gig. If you like wine, you just taste wine for a living. Unless the wine's poison, and then the gig goes from really good to really bad. That was his job. That was the risk involved. But he, he tells him his dream. And, and huh, this is what Joseph says. He says, listen, within three days, interpretation of your dream, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your position. Good news, good news, you're going to be reinstated. And I'm not sure the butler or the wine taster trusted Joseph, but he's like, I hope that happens. That's really good. Now, here's what's so fascinating. When Joseph shares this, he's still believing God's with him, but he leverages his circumstances because it indicates that things aren't really pleasant for him. He says, but when, in light of this, but when all goes well with you, remember me. Because I think God remembers me. I think, I'm trusting in that, but Butler, I need you to remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me the heck out of this prison. When this works out, tell him so I can get out of here. Here's what Joseph is saying, and this is so important in the story. This stuff's hard. I'm suffering. I'm not immune. This hurts my heart. It hurts my soul. It hurts my physical body. And that's, that's an important thing for you to realize because sometimes you hear Christians like me talk about trusting God and say, oh, I just trust God. 
You know, I got cancer. I'm trusting God. My, my wife left me. I'm trusting God. I lost my job. I'm trusting God. And everything is just unicorns and roses, right? That's not the case in Joseph's life. He, this is awful. He's still trusting God, but it is terrible. And he, he pleads his case to the butler. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm about the end of my rope. Now, it's the baker's turn. Remember the butler went first? Now the baker. He tells him his dream. And Joseph probably should have looked at the baker when he heard the dream and said, hey, gee, that's a really tough one. I'm not sure I got that one. In fact, I'm afraid I can't help you. Probably should have said that, but he doesn't. He tells him what he thinks his dream means. This is what he says to the baker. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and impale your body on a pole. Merry Christmas, man. It's all going to work out well for you. Anybody else want me to interpret your dreams? You know, everybody's like, no, 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 man. I don't want any part of that. And it gets worse. Look what he says. Not only is he going to put your head on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh, buddy. You are done for. This is what happens. Now, here's what's interesting. Three or four days later, Baker gets killed. Butler gets reinstated. Now, think about this. Butler goes back, he's reinstated, and Joseph's got to be thinking, ah, here we go, here we go. I, I did him this favor, now he's going to tell Pharaoh about me. It's going to be hours, and hours pass, and no one comes for Joseph. Then it's a day, and then two days, and then a week, and no one comes for Joseph. Every time the door to the, the jail opens up and somebody walks in, he's singing, this is it, I'm, I'm getting out finally. After all this time, after all these years, and weeks go by, and months go by, and years go by, two or three years. Now Joseph, he's 30 years old. Nothing, and nothing is working out. Well, another interesting twist of events happen. Pharaoh begins to have these disturbing, intricate dreams. And he can't figure out what they mean, and so the, the butler hears about it. He goes, hey, there's this Hebrew boy in prison. I'm telling you, I forgot all about this, Pharaoh. There's this Hebrew boy that when I had this weird dream, he interpreted it, and it came to be true. You should, you should ask him about your dream. And Joseph is remembered. And so this is what we're told, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. Remember, it's been two or three years in prison. He's 30 years old. This whole thing started when he was 17. When, and this is so interesting, the details of this are amazing. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now, you could just jump right over that, but think about this. He's been in prison for a couple years. He probably was rancid. He probably was filthy. He probably was living somewhat like a wild animal. And they had to clean him up because you don't go in front of the king or in front of your pharaoh looking or smelling like that. He was clean maybe for the first time that he'd been cleaned in years. And pharaoh, pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. And no one can interpret it, but I have heard it is said that you, that you when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, the next thing that Joseph says is quite possibly... The most courageous thing a person has ever said out loud in the history of man. Remember, Joseph's in prison. He's a foreigner. He is broken beyond broken. He is clean for the first time, probably fed well for the first time. And now he was looking into the eyes of Pharaoh who hold, held his entire life in his hands. And he would be wise to measure his words. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, interpret my dream. And Joseph was just... 
boldness says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now the butler's over in the corner and he's squirming because he's the one that suggested Joseph. And now maybe they're both going to get in trouble. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God. And here's where Joseph goes back to his trust that God's really with him. See, it's so interesting because Pharaoh believed that there wasn't just a God, but multitudes of gods. And Pharaoh believed he was a God himself. He had declared, like so many Pharaohs before him, his own divinity. The challenge with that is the Hebrew God, which Joseph was a Hebrew. They believed in one God that was more powerful than all other gods put together. And now Joseph would look at a man that thought he was God, who couldn't interpret his own dreams and say, let me tell you about a God that rules over all things in this world, including you, Pharaoh, because by the way, you're not really God. And it would have been like his chance for freedom should have just slipped through his fingers. I, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And I'm sure everybody in the courtroom was like, he's dead. Watch this. He's dead. Head on a pole. Birds eating his flesh just like the other guy, the beggar, that he's dead. But Pharaoh is curious. He sees something in this young man. And remember, Joseph is doing a great job at his job because every time he was asked to do something, he believed that God was with him. And so he would give it everything he had. He caught Pharaoh's attention. And so he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh tells him his dreams and Joseph interprets it. And basically the interpretation of the dream is this. For seven years, there's going to be incredible, prosperous food provided for the nation of Egypt. It's going to be some of the best times we have ever seen as a people. And then seven years after that, there's going to be an incredible famine. The rain's going to stop and the food's not going to be there. And people will begin to starve. And then in this moment... Joseph does the unthinkable. He doesn't only interpret Pharaoh's dream. He gives him advice. Can you imagine a foreigner from another faith, another country, who is a prisoner in your own prison, all of a sudden decides to say, hey, and Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. Pharaoh, you need to appoint someone to take care of this food problem that's about to wreck your whole country, your whole nation. So Pharaoh, we're told. So Pharaoh, in light of that, ask them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God, then Pharaoh, love this, said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, Joseph, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. Here's the end result. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your order. Can you imagine watching this happen and people going, what did he just say? He's, he's putting Joseph in charge of us? He's like second in command? Wait, Joseph's the prime minister? How did that happen? He was in jail yesterday. He was in prison yesterday. Pharaoh goes, yeah, it's just make sure we got it straight. Only with respect to the throne or me will I be greater than you, Joseph. Now, I, I have to chuckle a minute because when Pharaoh says this to Joseph, you're going to be number two in charge of the whole nation. I, I'm sure he was thinking, yeah that's what Potiphar said too. And look at how that worked out for me. God, you still with me? Okay, let's keep, keep forging ahead. I'm trusting you, God. And then Joseph went to work, 
preparing for this great famine. But he started with collecting food like no one had ever done in the history of man. Joseph stored up a huge quantities of grain. Like the sand of the sea, it was so much that he stopped keeping records of it because it was beyond measure. Joseph does this brilliant thing. He just starts to buy grain in every major large city that he could. And he began to buy so much grain, he drove the price of grain down so he could buy more, buy more, buy more. And he stocked it like no one had ever seen until, you know, the, the bends were overflowing. And then seven years went by and the rain stopped and the famine hit and people began to starve. And in that moment, Joseph was able to do what he was called to do and he threw open the doors to the grain bins and he started to sell it back to people and, you know, Egypt was saved. Now here's the interesting twist. Not only was Egypt in a famine, but surrounding regions, surrounding countries and nations and tribes, including one to the north of Egypt, where Joseph's daddy lived, and Joseph's 12 brothers and their 12 families and the 12 tribes lived. And Joseph's 12 brothers were beginning to starve along with their families. And so Jacob, being the elder father, grandfather, he jumps in and you can kind of hear a father's voice in this. He says, when Jacob, Joseph's father, learned that there was grain in Egypt because they were starving, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Dads, have you ever said this to your sons? Would you get up and do something about something? Just get up and move a little bit? That's exactly what his dad says. He goes on, Jacob says, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and we may not die. Now what happens next is just a little bit mind-blowing. Now Joseph, he's 40. Remember, he was sold when he was around 17 years old. Now he's 40. And his superpower that he has leveraged for the last 30 or so years is about to be tested like never before. And the choice before him is he can react. We all know what it means to react. Or we can respond with a measure faith-filled response. Now here's the question I want to ask you because I've been asking myself this. If I was Joseph in this moment and my brothers who had done all these terrible things to me were coming to ask me for a favor, how would I respond or would I just react? Now Joseph, we're told, was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people so When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. Now, you have to pull yourself out of the story and just think about this moment for this guy. He's looking at his brothers, and he remembered the day he walked over the hill, and they knocked him out, they stripped him of his clothes, they threw him in a dry cistern, and above him he could hear them arguing. Are we going to kill him or are we going to sell him? Are we going to kill him or are we going to sell him? And that moment that they handed his chain over to the slave traders and they drug him off and then they put him on a pedestal and then they bid him out to the highest bidder and Joseph could remember looking at his brothers in this moment, the feeling of being, you know, property with no human value to anyone else. He remembered that moment where he was falsely accused for doing the right thing by Potiphar's wife and the days and the months and the years of sitting in prison in complete despair. And now in front of him were the perpetrators of that sin, the perpetrators of what was done to him. It was their fault squarely on their shoulders. 
Joseph takes time and he does a little recon. He finds out about his father and his brother. And, you know, it's an incredible story. And in this moment, after he takes some time to walk through it all, he defies human instinct. And he gathers all of his brothers together. Puts everyone else out of the room. So it's just him and these guys that have done this atrocity to him. And he says, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph. Do you guys see? And in that moment, they looked into the eyes of a 45-year-old man, but they could see their 17-year-old brother. The 45-year-old man looked weathered and beaten and maybe a little bit of life sucked out of him, but there was their younger brother that they had betrayed. And before they could say anything, Joseph asked the question, I'm Joseph, isn't my father still living? Because we got to let him know because he has to be brokenhearted, remember? Because his dad didn't know what really happened to him. I love this next part, but his brothers, they were not able to answer him because they were terrified. Of course they were terrified. This is the second most powerful man, not in Egypt, but in all of the world. They were terrified at his presence. They should have been terrified. Here's what's amazing. They did not need to be terrified. Because you see, Joseph was living as as if God was with him. He was living as if God had walked through him, his journey, every step of the way. And when it counted most, and really in this moment it counted most, Joseph chose not to react, not to lash out, not to do an eye for an eye and bring justice. Wow, he responded and he forgave them in his heart. And then he forgave them out loud. He said, guys, brothers, yeah, come close. You don't have to be afraid of me. You sh- I mean, you should be afraid, but you don't have to be. When they had done so, he said, I, I'm your brother still. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. You remember that? They're all heads down. They have to be just brokenhearted. And now, do not be distressed and not be angry with yourselves. He's actually telling them to give themselves a break. It's unbelievable. For selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph, are you saying God had a part to play in it? I'm not saying God had a part to play in it. I'm saying God played a part all the way through it. And it's this insight that when we believe God is in the middle of our circumstances, we have a chance to respond as if God was with us. Joseph had a perspective looking back that that was awful, never want to go through it again, but God was working something through it all the way. That God actually had a plan and a purpose for what I went through. And through it, Joseph would say, Egypt (coughs) was saved. And not only Egypt, but my 12 brothers and my father, but not just my 12 brothers, because my 12 brothers had 12 families, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, which became the nation of Israel. (laughs) And out of the nation of Israel came Jesus thousands of years later. And when Jesus showed up on the planet, he loved people that didn't deserve to be loved. He met with people that weren't religious, and he reached out to people that were broken. And then he died on a cross for people that hung him on the cross. And his measured response is, I'm doing this to save the world. And Jesus did for you, and Jesus did for me, what Joseph did for his brothers. He forgave him 
and he gave them life. Joseph is this picture of Jesus that was yet to come. This picture, this foreshadowing of Jesus showing up on the planet and changing the world. What we get out of this is that we can never underestimate the power of a measured response that's a faith-filled response. It's overwhelming what happens because of Joseph's decision to be part of the story of the Messiah that saved the world. As we wrap up this story, because we could spend hours on this, but as we wrap up the story this morning, um, Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt. He's reunited with his father, and then his father Jacob dies after some time. And again, his brother's like, "Uh uh-oh, now that dad's gone, is he going to kill us? Because dad won't, you know, be upset anymore. So is Joseph going to now exact his revenge on us? This is what happens. His brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. They're, They're desperate. But again, Joseph does what he's always done. I believe God's with us. And I'm going to respond rather than react. But Joseph, in response to that, said to them, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And that's a little hard to understand in the original language. It's translated exactly, I am God's. Guys, you put me through hell. But my life is not my own. I'm God's. Guys, you cause heartache that's unbelievable. But I'm God. I'm God's. My life is not my own. And I did it for his purpose. And his purpose was to save you and to save the world and bring the Messiah to this planet. And then he says this thing that's mind-blowing. You intended to harm me. And we all know how people react when, they, when someone has intended to harm them. They react. They're angry. They lash out. They put stupid stuff out on social media. They, they, they're turned from a victim into a perpetrator. They're turned into something that's good, into something that's evil. It's how we go often when we are hurt, we're injured, we're robbed, there's an injustice. Joseph said, you intended to harm me. And we know where everybody goes with that. But God, because I'm his, intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Are you kidding me? Don't ever forget when it comes to Joseph's story, and really comes to our story, that God's intention became reality through one man's catalytic, unprecedented, circumstance-defying response to say, God's with me in the middle of this. And every time you're tempted to think or hear somebody like me say, listen, if God's with you, everything's going to be easy, it's going to get better, sometimes it doesn't. But God is working in it and doing something with it. And in this case, it ultimately led to the Savior of the world giving us resurrected life with him. It's being redeemed of all things. Here's the challenge with superpowers that God gives us. We don't choose the it, whatever your it is. Whether it's a pandemic, whether it's tension in our country, whether it's your own personal health problem or a failed marriage or a child that's not doing well that you love with all of your heart, your own personal faith, we don't choose it some of the time. That's part of the problem. But our response determines whether or not we are better for it. It all boils down to the question we've been asking through this whole series. How would someone in my circumstances respond? And again, we see it all the time how people react. We see it all the time. But how would someone in my circumstances respond 
if they were confident God was with them? How would you respond? How would I respond? If I was confident God was in the middle of it with me, like Joseph, God's with me. I'm being sold as a slave, yeah, but God's with me. I've been falsely accused of rape, yeah, but God's with me. Now I'm riding in a prison cell, yeah, but God's with me. Until at the end, he can look back and go, listen, I see that God's with me. And no individual response of Joseph, no single response made any difference for him. But all those responses put together changed the world. And he was better, not bitter because of it. Never underestimate the power of a faith-filled, Jesus-led response. So just to push just one more time, how would someone in your circumstances, I don't know what your circumstances are. I know for some of you, you might come up and say to me, listen, Matt, if you would let me have the mic and I could get on stage right now and tell everybody what I'm going through, you wouldn't talk about a purpose and a plan and hope. And I, I totally respect that. Because some of you are going through stuff I can't imagine. But what if at the end of it, you could look back and say, God, I didn't understand it all, but I believe you were in it with me and you're doing something with it. It's this idea, do do I want to be bitter or do I want to be better? And is there more to the story than meets the eye that I can see what God is doing? And for you, if you're going through some stuff, what if there is? What if you could hold on to this and you could get through this season without making it worse, without creating more havoc and more enemies in your life, but actually use something out of your story to do something good with it? And that's for everybody in the room. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can attempt to walk in that direction. But I'm telling you, if you're a Jesus follower, this is a big deal to me. The world's watching. People are paying attention. And it's so great, and I love this so much. When we stand and we sing songs with our hands raised and about God's faithfulness, I love doing that. But you know where that is really seen? When it feels like God's not around as much as he should be, even though we know he is. The world's watching. What do you do with your faith when it gets pressed in those areas? And we have an opportunity to show the world that our God is faithful and he loves us and he's working all things out for the good of those he loves. That's why Joseph was able to say at the end of his story, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And 4,000 years later, we are talking about Joseph and his faithfulness to God and him restoring his family and be part of the story of the Messiah, the Savior of the world coming into it. This is our opportunity to be better, not bitter. But remember, this works if we decide to let God help us find a measured, faith-filled response, not just react to our circumstances. And I believe with God's help, we can do that. We can do that well. Hey, and if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the invitation. Here's the invitation. Put your faith in a God that absolutely loves you and will never, ever leave you, even in the best and the worst of times. In just a second, we're going to sing a song. And the strong line in it says, yes, I will follow you through the lowest valleys. And this is an opportunity for us to say, God, we're following, we're trusting, we're putting our faith in you no matter what. And I hope in the next few minutes you have an opportunity to do that for the first time or reaffirm that. I want to pray for you and then we're going to sing together. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for this story that's amazing. We even get to read it and talk about it 4,000 years ago of how you were with Joseph every step of the way, even when it didn't feel like you were with him. 
And at the end, you worked all things out for your glory and his good. Help us to hang on to that kind of faith. Help us not to undermine our own lives by reacting to things out of anger or fear, but to have a measured, faithful response that you are the God of the universe and you hold us in your hands. Thanks for your immense love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.